0: From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. With international travel resuming and our biggest states reopening, life in Australia is finally returning to normal. So is this really the beginning of the end of the COVID-19 pandemic? And what have we learned from the past 18 months? Today... Nobel Prize winning scientist Peter Doherty, on what surprised him the most about the pandemic and the way we responded, and what we should expect in the months to come. It's Wednesday, November 3. Peter, hello. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you going?
1: We're just doing audio, aren't we?
0: We are, just audio.
1: Yeah, so I don't need to dress nicely.
0: (laughs) Well, you still can if you want to, but it's not necessary.
1: Purely psychological then.
0: (laughs) Um, Hey, it's great to have you back on 7am. I loved talking to you last time, but it feels like a lifetime ago now.
1: Uh, But everything feels like a lifetime ago now.
0: It's true. I think it was back in April um, 2020 (laughs) before we really had any, well, you might have known I had no idea what was about to come, but you probably had some sense of it, <laughs> more of a sense than me.
1: Yeah, some sense of it, but there uh, been a lot of surprises along the way. We've learned a lot. Uh, we're still learning and um, quite a way to go. It's a very complicated disease. Mm.
0: And so just how different has this past 18 months been for you compared to what your life as a scientist, as a Nobel Prize-winning scientist, was like before the pandemic?
1: Well, it's been different in a lot of ways over the last 18 months. And basically, you know, after the Nobel Prize, I kept on being heavily involved in lab based research for, oh, another 10 or more years. And also progressively got more involved in public science communication and I started writing books and talking to people about other things, climate change and so forth, where. I started to talk a lot with people in that community and then COVID hit and suddenly I find I'm right back in it. And uh, so I've I've been re-engaging and we've all had to grapple with a disease, which is not quite like anything we've seen before.
0: Yeah. And you said earlier that there have been a lot of surprises on the way. Can you tell me about that?
1: I the thing I, I didn't expect was I, di- I didn't understand the social consequence and the social implications and how that would work and the, the fact that it's been so much worse for people on lower incomes and people who have to go out and work every day because just to keep their to keep themselves going. What AIDS taught us all was that the behavioural dimension is enormously important. And then I sort of realised just how important the social sciences are and all this. So I'd learnt that a lesson, kind of, but this disease, uh, with dealing with this has taught me much more about that. You know, I never thought I'd be seeing epidemiologists being the talking point of human society on TV. I never knew we had so many epidemiologists.
0: <laughs> me either. <laughs> They're
1: all very nice and personable and uh, some are ferocious and some are not, but... Uh, I really enjoyed watching them. And the economic cost too. Um, We'd calculated, economists had told us a major flu pandemic, which is the one we always expected, could cost us trillions of dollars. Well, now we've lived through that and we understand what that actually means in real terms.
0: And, Peter, when we spoke last time, you were characterising this as the pandemic that we needed to have. And I just wonder... Reflecting back, what you meant by that, and also whether you think we have learnt the lessons that we needed to 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 better prepare us for the possibility of another pandemic.
1: Well, clearly, I was channeling Paul Keating in those <laughs> in those words. It was recession we had to have, as I recall, with Keating. But yes, I mean, I think I, we all thought the pandemic was inevitable. We all thought it might cause something of a reset. I mean, one of the things that's been happening across Western society particularly, is the constant cutting of publicly funded services, initiatives and roles. And uh, I thought uh, maybe this will cause us to rethink some of those things. If you keep cutting public health labs and public health services, you'll have a worse time of it. We'll have undoubtedly learned a lot. We will have adjusted some of our systems Of course, I'm sort of being an academic, I always want to know really what did happen. And so I'd like to think that there'll be resources there for people who are in universities and other situations like that to really go in depth and look at what happened here. I think we need to look at it from the aspect of the medical science, of course, which we're pretty on top of, and that's a pretty... You know, it's a very evidence-based world. But then I'd like to think we can really look at it from the point of view of the sociological consequences, the mental health consequences, the the economic consequences. So I think it would be great if we could actually reflect on this, analyze carefully what's happened, and then come up with some sort of broader principles about how we handle one of these things. You know, it's not the first pandemic we've ever had, but it's the first pandemic we've ever had in an era when we actually, in many cases, we've diagnosed everyone who's been infected with these PCR tests. So we'll know enormously more about this disease than we'll know about anything we've ever studied.
0: We'll be back in a moment. Peter, Australia is on its way to becoming one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. So I wonder what you think our responsibility is now to our neighbours who have lower vaccination rates, places like Papua New Guinea, where vaccination rates are very low, for example, just over 1% of the population there are fully vaccinated. So what happens if places like PNG don't reach the same targets as us?
1: Well, we need to help where we can, obviously. I think we're going to stop making the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's a much cheaper vaccine. We could have kept making it and sending it out to these countries and giving them a lot more vaccination um, opportunities. We can't organise their healthcare systems, though. I mean, that's up to their governments. We can't organise the distributions of vaccines and all the rest of it. We have been helping them through DFAT. DFAT has been, I know, commissioning modelling and so forth from us to help uh, with the Pacific Nations. So we have been helping, and I think Australia does take some responsibility for what's happening in the Pacific. But, of course, it's not just that. It's actually knowing that what you do is actually going to translate into real action in the actual country where you give the the product. Are they they able to, to, are they well-organised enough to actually use it properly? We do know some of the Pacific uh, islands and so forth are very heavily vaccinated. And They've been very well organised and done extremely well with it. Um, so we don't really know where this will go.
0: And, Peter, what is next with the virus? Are we likely to see new variants emerge, particularly if worldwide vaccination rates don't get to that 80 to 90% mark?
1: We haven't yet seen what we would think of as an immune escape variant emerge. You know, with influenza, we have to make a different vaccine every year that's because influenza viruses which mutate a lot faster than covid the covid doesn't mutate at anything like the rate of flu viruses but we'll get a flu virus every year which will jump the barrier of preceding immunity of antibodies to the virus so we have to make a new vaccine we haven't yet seen that with covid and the delta variant which is the one we've been so worried about which is you know it grows faster and grows to a higher level than previous variants, and as a consequence, transmits more and maybe causes a bit more severe disease, emerged in December 2020 when there was almost, in India, when there was almost no vaccine, there were a few vaccine trials starting there, but nothing happening there much. And so it's, it's actually just a virus that grows faster and spreads faster. So whether we'll see immune escape variants, which would require a new vaccine quite possibly as with flu, we don't know. And we don't know what's really been happening in a lot of these countries anyway because, you know, how much disease have they had? We, In, in, in some cases the reporting is very poor.
0: Mm. And I know obviously it's so hard to predict the future and there is so much that we don't know, but at what point do you think we might be able to say that this particular pandemic is over? Is it ever going to be or is Are things permanently different now as a result of COVID-19?
1: No, I I think basically if the virus doesn't change dramatically and we don't get an immune escape variant, which would require new vaccinations, but basically um, the companies are set up to do that much more quickly now. They've been making variant vaccines as sort of seed stocks, if you like, against the variants we know are out there and they could probably put those into production and a very limited trial fairly quickly. But then you'd have to get out there and vaccinate all those people again. But I think at the moment, if you look at the Australian situation, if we say the virus is not going to change dramatically, uh, we have got we may get over 90% of the people vaccinated. A lot of the people that aren't vaccinated will get infected. So they will also be protected because they'll be convalescent and, uh, and prior infection is actually a pretty good protection, uh, better than we thought it was initially, actually, when we first detected reinfection you know, in a year or so, you might think, well, we're you know we're actually close to 100% protected. Now, we do know that people who are vaccinated can be reinfected. They, they can get a breakthrough infection, but they don't transmit nearly as much, we think, as the ones that are unvaccinated. I think, though, that next year, if the virus doesn't change, then we give booster shots to the more vulnerable. We'll be looking at uh, something that's much more like normal influenza and You know, people will catch it, they'll get a bit sick, they won't die, and and it'll just be part of the background. We don't normally uh, shut down human society for a virus infection.
0: Mm. And as the pandemic does fade into the background, I wanted to ask you about something else that I know that you're very passionate about, which is climate change. That's really the next big challenge that we're all facing.
1: Look, I mean, it is the next, it is the great challenge for humanity. And when you think tackling something like climate change, you need policy settings that work. Now, the politicians are capable of acting effectively, as we've seen through COVID. There have been flaws in the way they've operated, they've been faults, they've made mistakes, but everyone does. They've listened to the medicos and the scientists and the epidemiologists and so forth. But it's for Politicians to listen to expertise and then come to those conclusions that they think are politically appropriate. But basically, try and get any politician in the federal government on on the current government side to actually talk to a climate scientist. They won't talk to them. And by far, the greatest challenge is not COVID. It's climate change. You can make a vaccine against COVID. You can get drugs against COVID. And you can declare it's over. Uh, it's, it's not even like a war with climate change. You can't just declare peace and expect it to stop. I'm not going to be around to see what the consequences are, but I hope they're better than the, what I think at the moment.
0: Mm. And, Peter, Melbourne, where you live, is hitting its vaccination targets and is beginning to reopen. Life is largely returning to normal. What are you most looking forward to?
1: Well, I'm most looking forward to my booster. shot
0: Said like a true scientist.
1: <laughs> Vaccines have worked remarkably well on the elderly. And, um, you know, they protected a lot of people, There's some frail elderly and so forth still dying, and that will continue to happen. But I'd, I'd really like to get that booster shot before I fully engage back in human society because it pushes your antibody levels right up. So so my psychological break point is not so much now, it's six months after my last vaccine shot, which is the end of the year, and I get a booster shot. And then I, I basically think that basically the only thing to do is go back to relatively normal life, quite frankly.
0: Well, Peter, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you first at the beginning of the pandemic and now hopefully at the end of it.
1: Well, as, as Churchill said, are we at the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning? I think we're at the beginning of the end. I hope so.
0: I hope so too. Um, thanks, Peter.
1: Okay. Bye.
0: Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Mementa. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Also in the news today, the diplomatic rift between Australia and France has widened, with Prime Minister Scott Morrison accused of leaking text messages sent between the two leaders. After French President Emmanuel Macron accused Morrison of lying over the cancellation of a submarine contract, text messages were published by several news outlets seemingly contradicting Macron's version of events. And Victoria's opposition leader Matthew Guy has told Tim Smith, his former shadow attorney general, not to contest the next state election due next year. Smith resigned his role after a drink-driving incident over the weekend. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.